Morning, church. Morning, church. Let's open our copies of God's Word to Acts 14. We'll dive right in. Acts 14, as a quick review, we're asking and answering questions like, why are we together this morning? What is the purpose of the church? And to answer these questions, we're making our way through the last half of the book of Acts, which covers the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, along with Barnabas, later Silas. Today we've learned that we are together both by and for the gospel, which we just sang with great enthusiasm. The Holy Spirit gave birth to the church. The Holy Spirit gave birth to the church through the gospel, and then the Holy Spirit mobilized the church for the mission of spreading the gospel. That reality hasn't changed in 21 centuries. That's still what the Spirit's up to in my life individually, in our lives collectively as a congregation. Last week, we looked at the second leg of the first missionary journey of Paul as he landed on the southern coast of modern Turkey. There's a map on the screen. I offer this map not simply because I'm a social studies geek, but because I want us to make sure we understand these are real places with real people, and there's a real hope offered through the gospel to the folks that were there uh, 21 centuries ago. So the mission, the church starts in Antioch of Syria over on the right, then to Cyprus, then to Perga. I've been to Perga. I've walked the ancient streets of Perga. Archaeologists have dug those streets up. There's large colonnades, ancient colonnades, and you can walk where Paul walked and Barnabas walked there in Perga. They go up to Antioch. That was last week. They decide to leave Antioch. They go to Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. And then they'll turn around and they'll go back, which is where I'll wrap up, Lord willing, today. So these are real cities, real peoples being offered a real hope. I'll start in verse 1 of chapter 14. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed, Lord willing, um, there would be effective communication this morning. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with the leaders to mistreat them and even stone them. But they found out about it and they fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derby and to the surrounding countryside where they continued to preach the gospel. I'll pause there for just a moment. When we read in God's word that those who did not believe actively stirred up against the apostles, they stirred up the Gentiles, they poisoned their minds against what Paul and Barnabas were offering. How does it make us feel to know some might ridicule us, mock us, reject us, slander us because of our proclamation of the gospel? 
when we read that the people of the city were divided, some siding with the Gentile, uh, some siding with the Jews and the leadership out of the synagogue, some siding with the apostles. How does it make us feel to know that the gospel may divide some? Communities, families, some embracing the gospel, some rejecting the gospel. When we read that there was a plot afoot to mistreat the apostles, even to stone them, to carry out violence against them, how does it make us feel to know that bodily harm could come to us because of our faith? Sometimes the possibility of suffering hardship and enduring persecution because of faith can feel surreal in our suburban context. That's just not often our experience. But I want to read to you some headlines from a website titled The Voice of the Martyrs. You can Google it, easy enough to find. The web address is persecution.com. This website is dedicated to, to supporting persecuted Christians around the globe and to telling their stories. Just this week, I went there, and here are three headlines from this week, which our congregation as a group can relate to. The first is a Colombian gang blocks church, so the pastor preaches outside. Just this morning on the prayer call, we pray every Sunday morning, 745 to 815. Love to have you there. Send me your email address. I'll add you to the distribution list. It's a Zoom prayer meeting. One of the men who, who was on the Zoom call was from Colombia, David Wigman, one of our elders here, chairman of the elder board. We have missionaries in Colombia, Beth and Rafa Afanador. And there is persecution in Colombia, active persecution against believers. But Beth and Rafa have been there for, I'm going to guess, four decades. And on the prayer call, he shared one of the requests is Rafa is putting together uh, NBA player alumni who could come to Colombia and preach the gospel. So we can be in prayer about that. Next headline North Korea border guard smuggles Bibles. North Korea is not simply a restricted country, it is a closed country to the gospel. Yet we have missionaries from our congregation, whose names I won't say on recording, because their associates in North Korea could uh, draw fire because of that, could be persecuted. So we have congregants, uh, missionaries, uh, with us at Glenn Bible Church, who actively participate in outreach in North Korea, travel there, pray for them, we pray together for them. Lastly, children of martyred missionaries in danger. This is out of the Congo. And we have missionaries in the Congo, in Bolifalani, in Boligihi, Nadalu is their last name. In Boligihi and in Bolifalani came for graduate school at Wheaton, attended here for church. We fell in love with them and they with us, and they went back to the Congo where they do gospel-centered ministry. Actually, most of the martyrs of the last decade are in the Congo, Christian martyrs are in the Congo as radical Islamists target believers in that country. These types of headlines are hard to read. Voice of the Martyrs focuses their efforts on supporting the 70 plus countries that are restricted and or closed to the gospel. Supporting the believers, some estimated 4 million believers in these countries like Iran, Iraq, who are actively targeted for their faith, imprisoned, brutalized. We'd like to think that persecution is something of 
the past, just the ancient world, but that is not the case. We'd like to think that humanity has evolved, all evidence to the contrary. So what are we to make of this? Here's my a summary thought, and there's a lot that we could say out of the 28 verses we'll make our way through this morning. But here's my summary thought. Hardships are certain for those on the gospel mission. They're not simply probable or likely. They're certain for those that live on mission. John 15 on the screen just below that is a statement from John's gospel, Jesus' own words. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. It embrace you. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. So picture the world and the current of popular culture like Niagara Falls, and he has plucked us out of that current. That is why the world hates you, because you're not going with the flow. You're standing against it. Remember the words, I spoke to you. No servant's greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Our Savior's own words. Not simply likely are hardships, or not simply even probable, certain, our Savior says. Certain, Paul says. Another time, Jesus described those living on mission as sheep among wolves. What if our logo as a church wasn't the little pretty wheat stock that it is? What if our church logo, I wonder how many would attend, if our church logo was a wolf's head with a little sheep's tail coming out of the mouth? I wonder who would come to church. Yet that's how Jesus describes our reality. Sheep among wolves. He wants us to understand that some will oppose us. And when it happens, he doesn't want us to be caught off guard so that we can stand firm. Verse 8. Let's continue reading. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He'd been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out to him, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk, praise God. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. So the people of Lystra began preaching the incarnation, but not of Yahweh, the enfleshing of gods. The gospel is Yahweh became flesh and dwelled among us, Jesus Christ. In the Lyconian language, they say the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus. Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Hermes is the god of messages. Hermeneutics is, is the work of trying to figure out the message. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. They think they're incarnate gods. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We're bringing you good news 
telling you to turn. It's still the gospel. This is still the gospel. Turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, this living God, he let all nations go their own way, yet he's not left himself without a testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops and seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead, leaving him for dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. From the highest highs to the lowest lows, what a roller coaster is living on mission. Just when you think Paul's ministry may take off, right? He lands in Lystra. And he sees that this guy has faith. The guy's listening to the gospel intently. He sees he's got faith to be healed and he's never walked. He says, stand up. And the guy jumps up and starts walking. You'd think, you'd think the city would be convinced and there would be an outbreak of revival. But no. Do you know that miracles aren't always sufficient for faith? So often we get caught up in praying for a miracle to convince somebody. But here, this miracle of this man standing moved the city first to blasphemy. These guys are incarnate gods. We'll sacrifice to them. And then to stoning them. Whoever said that um, right, following Jesus w- would be dull? Listen to how Paul describes the experiences in Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. Some years later, as he's writing to a mentoree named Timothy, Timothy was a pastor in Ephesus, he's writing 2 Timothy, right? So it's, it's the, they think, the last letter Paul wrote. He's in prison. Listen to how he frames his experiences on this first missionary journey. You, however, know all about my teaching. He's writing to a mentoree, Timothy. My way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Iconium, in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured. He's talking about being stoned. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone. Not some or most. Everybody. I've known parents who verbally assaulted their children for leaving the faith in which they were raised in order to follow Jesus. I've also known of grandparents who are not allowed to see their grandbabies because of their passion for Christ. I've known of husbands persecuted by their wives 
for wanting to spend vacation on a mission trip. I've known of wives persecuted by their husbands for wanting to give money to the local church. I've known of professionals shunned at the office because of their faith in Christ. I've known of managers passed over, managers who felt passed over for promotion because of their faith in Christ. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This seems to mean that if I'm never opposed, if I never suffer hardship because I'm for the mission of the gospel, then I must ask whether I really am living on mission, whether I really desire to live a godly life. If I'm never opposed, if I never experience any hardship, and we need to be honest with ourselves, the suburbs are about comfort. They're about convenience. If I'm never persecuted, if I never face hardship, am I endeavoring to live a godly life? Am I living on mission? And don't get me wrong, I don't want to be persecuted. In fact, being persecuted is not even the goal. The goal is faithfulness. The goal is fruitfulness. It's following our Savior. So we shouldn't try to be persecuted. But it is a natural outcome of godliness. Make no mistake, living a godly life will make you strange in this world, which means you will draw fire. You'll stick out, and as a consequence, you'll suffer persecution. You'll suffer hardship. It's not going... The way we live as followers of Christ will not make sense to those in the flow of popular culture. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, describes the people of God as peculiar. It's the King James Version of strange, odd, out of step. I'll give you some examples of how we're odd. We believe that sin exists. We believe that there are some attitudes and actions that are right, righteous, in line with the character and purposes of God, and there are some attitudes and actions that are wrong, that is to say sinful, out of step with the character and purposes of God. And for that reason, they shouldn't be done. This is going to put you out of step with popular culture, who has as its highest value consent. Well, if I consent to it, then it's okay. I, in fact, am my own law. And I can say what is right and what is wrong. So if I consent, then it's okay. Lord, have mercy if I'm my highest law or if we're the highest law, globally speaking. We're a strange people that actually says the character of God is the standard and we all fall short in our need of his mercy. We believe that Strangely, we believe that God paid the price for our sinfulness, making a way for us to be reunited to him. We believe the righteousness of another man, his moral perfection, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross as a sin substitute for us, trusting in his moral perfection, his sacrifice on the cross, and his resurrection, 
brings us eternal life. We believe that sin exists, but that God, the one we offended, has made a way for us to escape hell and to live with purpose, a purpose greater than ourselves, a purpose that's not just self-serving, a purpose that's eternal, a purpose that's missional. We believe God authored a book A book in which original authors wrote to an original audience through which God is still speaking 21 centuries later. We believe that God has an enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion looking to destroy his people and undermine his purposes in the world. We believe that prayer works And that God has ordained prayer as a means to accomplishing his purposes in the world. Is it the only way to accomplish his purposes? No. But it's a primary way. Yeah, we close each service. We will today. Bob and Maggie Thomas will be down front. If you'd like prayer, let me encourage you to come forward during that time. Why? Because we're a strange people. And we believe that when we pray, eternity invades our temporal realities. And God moves for his glory and our good. We actually believe that. We are strange in our, not simply our beliefs, we're strange in our language. We use words like propitiation, justification, sanctification, regeneration. Propitiation is the theological term that refers to the appeasement of God's wrath against the sin of humanity through the death of Jesus. Regeneration is the theological term that denotes God moving somebody from death to life. God bringing somebody out of darkness into light. God regenerating us. Justification is a change of legal status, guilty before God at one moment and pronounced guiltless before God through faith in Jesus Christ, forgiven, let off the hook. Sanctification is the word that denotes the progressive work of God to move us from sinful to holy because his command is that we'd be like him in his holiness. We have strange beliefs, we have strange language, and we have strange behavior. Behavior out of step with the behavior of popular culture. We go about telling people they must be saved through faith in another man. We believe that evangelism is what we're charged to do. That we're to carry the good news. We don't believe. It's arrogant. We actually believe it's a call to humility. And it's actually in this morning's passage... Paul says, turn from these worthless things. These worthless mythologies about Zeus and Hermes. Turn from that. Because an incarnation has actually happened. Yahweh has become incarnate in Christ and given his life for us. It's interesting that the ancient pagans thought incarnation was real. They just had a mythological base for it. We're strange in our behavior in that we gather to sing weekly. We're strange in our behavior in that we discipline our bodies. We're not athletes. I was waiting for an amen. (laughs) We're not athletes. 
Yet we're in 20, <laughs> we're in 21 days of prayer and fasting. Who does that? And we fast not to put God in an arm bar and say, now we'll get what we want. No, we fast to remind ourselves of how weak we are and in need of, it's not coincidence, he's described himself as the bread of life. The only one who ultimately will satiate our greatest and deepest cravings. We abstain from sexual immorality. Paul said, I beat my body into submission lest I not be disqualified from the gospel that I preach. One of the fruits of the Spirit, and it is the Spirit's fruit, it's not Kelly's fruit, it's not our fruit, it is the fruit of the Spirit. One of the fruits of the Spirit, ironically, is self-control, the ability to say no to sinful desires, and to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to the earthly nature. Colossians 3, and then he gives a laundry list of what belongs to the earthly nature. Sexual immorality, lust, evil desires, greed. The Spirit empowers us to say no to the flesh and to say yes as instruments of righteousness. We give generously. We give sacrificially of time and money. We forgive an infinite number of times. We pray for those who persecute us. We are a strange people. And recognizing that we are strange will actually help us to endure hardship. After all, just when you think Paul's ministry might take off, this guy, after all, gets up and he walks. That's pretty astounding. He'd never walked before. You'd think everybody would say, what must I do to be saved? I want to believe in the God that makes men, uh, lame men walk. That's not what they said. It was actually the walking of this man that, that called the consensus to persecute Paul and Barnabas. Do you remember the miracle that actually moved the Pharisees once and for all to put Jesus to death? It was the resurrection of Lazarus. Three days in the grave. Jesus calls him out of the tomb, and the conclusion that the Pharisees draw is, now he's got to die. And we can't stand this anymore. Now Jesus must die. So Paul tries to intervene. He tries to intervene. He says, don't offer sacrifices to us as Zeus and Hermes. We're not God's descended, descendants, uh, having descended Acts 14, 15, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn. Based on the authority of God's word this morning, I want to encourage you to turn from these worthless things, the idols of popular culture, and live for God who made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. You know, repentance, the call to, to turn, to repent, Repent is, a, is a, an initial one-time event, but it's an ongoing activity. We should ask one another, not simply have you repented, but are you repenting? Are you turning away from the, the worthless myths of popular culture and the ideas of popular culture towards faith in the living God 
who raised his son from the grave and gave us his word that we might live holy lives. Do you know that we have everything we need for life and godliness? It's not that scripture answers every possible question, but it is that to live godly, everything needed is addressed in his word. How tempting it might have been for Paul to say something instead of preaching repentance, turn. How tempting it might have been for him to say, no, no, I'm not human, you've misunderstood, and then not give a call to repentance. The essence of the gospel is turn from these worthless mythologies and the ways of the world and trust and follow after Christ our Savior. Verse 21. We'll keep going here. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. So they're in Derby, having, Paul having been stoned in Lystra. Then they returned, now they're backtracking. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Listen to what they say. There's a quote here. Quote, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, unquote. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had reached the, preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to Gentiles, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So you want to throw the map back up, Matt? Thank you. Start in Antioch of Syria, Cyprus, Perga, Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, stoned in Lystra, wind up in Derby, then backtrack to all the previous cities. This is the first missionary journey, out and back. Now as they go back, they're visiting the churches, the believers, And they want to encourage them. They encourage them with these words, verse 22, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Folks, what is our theology of suffering? What's your framework for the purposes of suffering? Does suffering have a place in your worldview? Do you see it as an essential part of discipleship? I ask because as Paul is strengthening the churches, He does have a theology of suffering. In fact, he says that that we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We don't enter the kingdom of God by suffering hardships. No, we enter the kingdom of God through faith in another man and the hardships he suffered, Jesus Christ. But because Jesus went through hardships, we can be assured we'll go through hardships. And if we're not careful in our suburban context... Our love of comfort and convenience can be at odds and put us at odds with experiencing the kingdom of God. So we're not saved through our suffering, but we are saved to go through suffering. There's just no other way to slice this. Jesus' own words are on the screen. If anyone would come after me, that's what we're about. We're about making disciples. We're about helping people follow Jesus. We want to see people come after Jesus, walk after him. He must deny himself and take up his cross. 
say no to things I desire, and load up a cross, an influence of torture and death, and follow Jesus. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life from me will find it. Matt, would you put the map up one more time? Here's what's fascinating to me and what I find really convicting. There was a faster, more convenient way to get back to Antioch of Syria. The map doesn't show it, but there's a range of mountains. In fact, um, see the uh, Tarsus, that's Paul's hometown. Tarsus is Paul's hometown, born and raised. Uh, if you, the fastest and most convenient way from Derby, the end of the journey, back to Antioch of Syria, Syria is to go through Tarsus, but you have to go over a range of mountains. So depending on the time of year that they finished in Derby, they might have had to wait out the winter. But for whatever reasons, they turn around and they go back to the cities where they had experienced persecution. I find this tremendously challenging because I know my own flesh. If it was summertime, the most clearly they wouldn't have had to wait and they could just get over the mountains, over the mountain pass. And they get back to Antioch of Syria quickest. If it's winter, they just hunker down and, and uh, wait in Derby for the winter to come to an end, and then they go back over the mountains. They don't do that. They go back to Lystra, back to Iconium, back to Antioch, where they had experienced hell. I find that really personally challenging. They didn't move away from persecution. In fact, Paul, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Man, I, my hand's up. Give me that. And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Wow. That is challenging. But I'll tell you, apart from that, apart from picking up my cross, and carrying it, and following after my Savior, what else would I live for that would bring real meaning, and purpose, and joy? Philippians 2, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. In fact, every day that I stand at the threshold of sin, and I think to myself, well, I could go into sin here, or I could live on mission here, and that comes a gazillion times a day. I can live for myself, or I can follow after Jesus. And though it may be hard, there's joy in it. There's hope in it. Because that's where my God is, my creator. If you're here today, and you're, you're at a loss for the purpose of life, there is no greater purpose than serving your creator. And Colossians 1 is really clear. By him, Jesus Christ, and for him are we made. You were made by your creator, you were made for your creator, and your creator has called you to carry a cross and to live for him, not to live for yourself. Amen? I'll pray for us toward that end. Father, the psalmist says in Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God. We cry out, have mercy on us, O God. As suburbanites, we are drawn towards comfort and convenience.
And it is easy to get sucked into the culture of living for ourselves. Have mercy on us. Draw us into the mission that is Christ. Help us find our crosses and endure and persevere. I ask this for the glory of our Savior and the good of his people. Amen.